Welcome into another episode of the Golf.com podcast. I'm your host, Sean Zock. Today, we're going to learn some stuff. We're going to learn a bit about Jordan Spieth, a bit about the kind of preparation it takes to win at the PGA Tour level, and a bit about how you can apply that to your own game. To do so, I'm glad to welcome in Cameron McCormick, the well-known coach of Jordan Spieth and a number of successful amateurs. Cam, first of all, thank you for joining me this morning. Yeah, my pleasure, Sean. Thanks for having me on. You got it. Now, we've got plenty of topics that I want to get to, but first I want to help explain to those who don't know you who exactly Cameron McCormick is and how he got to where he is today. Now, you were born in Australia, and instead of jumping straight into coaching, you actually tried to exist as a player first. Yeah, I'm, I'm a failed professional, failed competitor, I guess <laughs> is what you could say, but even before that, I, I started golf really late. Growing up in Australia, I had visions of playing professional Aussie rules football because my dad played as a pro and then when that didn't look like it was going to happen I turned to tennis and golf was really my third choice I picked it up when I was 16 years old and I I caddied for a couple of guys in the Australasian PGA Tour and they told me about the opportunity to play college golf in America and at that point I was all in considering that would give me a longer runway to try and fill out my skills and maybe become a professional at um, my third board of choice so I came over here and went to a small junior college in um, Kansas to try and cut my teeth and develop a competitive, uh, I guess, resume. And then moved from there in 1994 to Texas Tech. I had a scholarship. I went down there and I played. I redshirted one year and played two years. Didn't play all that great, but you know what? Um, dreams of a kid or a young man at that point. Um, you certainly wanted to give it a shot. So I gave a, a shot, meaning I gave professional golf a shot for two years and um, cut one check in those two years, so that wasn't enough to keep the dream alive, so to speak. <laughs> and economic, economics forced me into uh, a choice, and that choice was to do something different. And uh, that something different was get into the golf professional side rather than professional golf side. So professional golf, in my mind, would be playing the game for a living, and becoming a golf profession would be uh, the business of golf. And that was probably... A year, 18 months in, I decided uh, within the, I guess, the, the big um, swimming pool of being a golf professional, you can do many things, and teaching and coaching was really what resonated with me. Why, why is that? Just, what what, uh, appealed, what helping, appealed to you about teaching? Helping others, yeah. So not being a performer anymore outside of playing in local section events in the odd U.S., um, open qualifier, I really wanted to still be in touch with the process of improvement and the process of achievement um, as, as a player. And so when you could um, speak a language of performance and when you could um, help someone not make the mistakes that you made previously as a player, it, it, um, it, it allowed me to be um, plugged in still to uh, competing in a different way. Uh, so that's what resonated with me, and then I, I've spent the next 17, 18 years in um, this odyssey of trying to develop my skills as a coach to try and help people uh, climb the ladder higher and higher. Now, I did a, only a little bit of reading uh, as far as what we've done with you at golf.com, and Gary Van Sickle talked to you, I think, which is coming up on four years ago now. He kind of learned the backstory of Cam McCormick. As far as the teaching goes, you reached out to some of the best teachers in the game, and then like just tried to tutor behind them, learn from them? You yeah. traveled all over the country to do this? 
Yeah, I spent probably a year. Now, I wasn't traveling for the entire year. It would be my off time away from my job at then Dallas Country Club as an assistant. I travel around and be a fly on the wall, shadowing some of the best coaches in the country, trying to learn what were these unique traits that they had that maybe I didn't have, what they did that I already did, what I felt quite well. And I'm just picking up nuggets of information along the way that I think um, used to help the, the people that blessed me with the opportunity to help them. Um, and the idea really came from my wife, quite frankly. Uh, she had written to some of the prominent figures in the golf industry when I turned 30 and said, will you send my husband a birthday wish? It would be a welcome. Um, that was a novel idea to me to reach out to people that I think were um, not unapproachable, but you, you, just untouchable because you, you didn't um, think you were going to get a response. And sure enough, they responded. And then uh, the top coaches in the country also, also responded, and many of them positively with, yeah, come on, and, um, and, and we're going to share information. Um, it really speaks to, I guess, the honor that there are no secrets and we can share information, and there's this principle of abundance where um, with the way we get better is by helping each um, each person, I guess, rise up and grow their, their uh, information to help others. Yeah, I like that story because I think it, it can apply to just about any industry. Myself, being a writer and a journalist, I think one of the, the best things that writers and journalists can do is to read some of the best work that has been done. Or if you want to get better, read the people that are better than you. I'm sure that applies to coaching in many ways. What is something that you felt that was similar across the board among all the coaches that you kind of felt was a universal trait that, that really helped them succeed? Yeah, so um, I would answer a couple of ways. The first would be that universally, each of the coaches that I observed are all different. They're all unique individuals, personalities, communication strategies. But the universal similarity would be they're um, ever the chameleon never changing the way they're interacting with the person in front of them, whether that person in front of them is Joe Bloggs, who's a 26 or 30 handicapped recreational player, or whether the person in front of them is a high-performing player that may play professional or elite-level amateur golf. And uh, another point that I would make would be the best coaches that I saw had a really deep playbook. And the analogy that I give would be like watching Bill Belichick on the sidelines with his um, play cards that are just massive and there's hundreds upon hundreds of plays and at any time they're never really left wondering what direction to go because they've always got another trick, another tool up their sleeve that they can use if what they're doing is unsuccessful. So very resourceful and very um, very deep playbook. I like that. Now along the way you get paired up with Jordan Spieth right around uh, when he's 12 years old. So this is over a decade ago now. Does it feel like it's been over a decade, you and Jordan working together? It doesn't, actually. When I look back at video and, and watching from when he was 12 or 13 or 14, yeah, it gives it a better, I guess, bearing on how much time we've been together. But, you know, each session seems fresh. Each time we get together after a stretch on the road or even if I'm out of an event, it seems fresh. There's nothing stale about it. Um, he has high goals and... The beauty of that is he's driving um, he's driving the bus, and we all have to keep up. We all have to keep up with um, getting better at what we do, at what we try and help him with, given our own kind of um, lines to color within me being instructor and coach and Michael being uh, caddy and onboard kind of um, advisor or sports psychologist sometimes. So um, 
we have to kind of stay as best we can ahead of the curve. Uh, but the 10 years has, has been amazing, and I've borne 10, 20, 30 more all the way until we um, ultimately play in the Champions Tour or however he wants to, however long he wants to play this game. I like it. When, when did you realize that Jordan was driving the bus and that you had to, to stick up with him and, and keep up with him? <laughs> um, it depends on what part of driving the bus we're talking about. You know, I've actually only ever beat him on the golf course once. So from a performance standpoint, I think that uh, he's always been driving the bus. From an, from an information standpoint, I feel like um, probably at about 17, 18 years old, he's information in terms of, actually no, even earlier than that, probably 16, 17 years old, the golf IQ and tactical insight that he has from competing and playing the game, probably I felt surpassed mine and I need to, need to step up my game and um and, and I guess grow my knowledge. Um, from a coaching instruction, swing instruction standpoint, I, I've always been uh, ahead of the, the game in, in terms of his comparison to Jordan's knowledge. But he's very, very insightful and can help um, help himself, which is important, and help others as they ask him first in advice. But you know, from an early age, there was never any need for, I would say from 13, from the first day I met him, there was never a need for me to um, put more fuel to his fire. There was always that inner desire, inner burning um, passion uh, and purpose to want to improve. Um, there's never been a period of time where he's given me indication he was kind of despondent or um, disengaged from really wanting to become the best player that he could possibly be, which is a unique trait. You know, most of the time players go through an entire career and, um, and at various points in time they would feel that sense of wanting to be unplugged away from the game, but he just has a passion for it that um, that seems um, eternal. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, now, I've witnessed uh, this a couple occasions, and it's a really interesting thing. It always catches my eye. Uh, the first time I saw it was at Whistling Straits, practice round on Wednesday. You're walking around with Jordan, and he's actually playing with both Matt Jones and Matt Jones's brother, who's a PGA pro, and you're throwing, you're essentially throwing a ball to the ground in this ankle-thick rough at Whistling Straits, uh, right, really near side on the green, and you're like challenging Jordan, and it's like this game going back between the two of you. And I, I was not close enough to realize exactly what was going on. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm just kind of curious about what kind of games you play like that with him. Yeah, so the, I didn't think there was any. Um, day that we're together, whether it's at an event or off an event, that we're not playing some type of game to, I guess, firstly challenge him from a skill standpoint. Because really, my job is to um, expose opportunities, identify opportunities for improvement. Sometimes they come from him telling me that, hey, Cam, this is what I was challenged with this week. How can we correct it? And sometimes they're just things that he doesn't quite see. But in the context of whistling straights or any event that I'm at, uh, and and any event that I'm not at, Jordan's job and Michael's job is to prepare for that event. I think I remember the situation. It was kind of left of the past three, but it, <laughs> yeah. could, have, it could have been on any hole because there was some deep rough about um, about every one of those greens. But on the, that past three on the front nine where the water's on the right-hand side or the lake on the right-hand side, and we were throwing down balls and just challenging to see how many of the balls he could get up and down. But it's situations like that where we're looking to um, develop some game intelligence, some competitive advantage maybe in coming up with the best solution for 
not only the length of the rough, but also the way the grass is sitting. So I, I term that golf by IQ. Uh, when the, the knowledge that the player has when the grass is sitting in a different way, that certain styles of shot, certain forms that they would use would be effective versus ineffective. And if we do enough of that in practice, then there's no question when he gets that situation uh, on the golf course. But that's a small sampling of what we would do with any skill um, and any day of the week, really. We're building on a foundation of um, good, fundamental skill of being able to move a ball um, from point A to point B with a, let's say, a stock shot. And then we're building um, some specialty shots some variability uh, from that. So it's a, it's a really, uh, really good example of that. Yeah. Now, I, I know that there's much more to Cameron McCormick than just coaching Jordan Spieth, but I got one more Jordan question for you. Was there a specific thing that Jordan or you really wanted to work on within his game this offseason? And I'm curious, if there is, um, how do you go about fixing or, or improving that aspect without neglecting any other aspects of his game? Yeah, so, yeah, you, you speak the two things right there is how do we identify those opportunities for improvement and then how do we make sure that we're not um, spending time and and to the, I guess, cost of um, anything else that we're trying to improve. So the first point is uh, I feel like it's my job to stay ahead of what the data is telling us as well. So one thing is going to come back and say, here's where my game's at. And it's another thing for the data that we get from ShotLink to not um, drive where we focus attention, but further inform. So the expression would be, I'm not data-driven, I'm data-informed. So the data informs how far off relative to the world's best any skills may be. And so then that um, really kind of refines the focus or the attention for a phase of development. And in particular, this off-season, it was about improving iron play um, last year, coming off the 2015 season, in fact, it seems like each year a player is more and more successful. It becomes more and more demand on their time, both at, on the golf course, uh, off the golf course, even weeks off at events. And so um, really what we were looking at last year was just a, a lack of time to get the necessary um, reps in. There wasn't enough time to put the sweat equity in and get the calluses on the hand and to wear a set of irons out like you'd had in times before. So the off-season was about high volume, really. It was about revisiting a blueprint of um, swing form that we'd always been working on um, and then just putting more um, reps under under his belt. Uh, we could call it time in the saddle, but use the riding analogy. I heard you use the phrase sweat equity. I think that's brilliant. I'm just curious. Is that is that your phrase? Did you come up with that on your own? Uh, probably not. <laughs> most, most of the phrases that I usually would be ripped from someone, I just don't remember the source, but I probably read it somewhere. But yeah, it's about putting sweat, it's about, about putting time um, between where you are and where you want to get to. It typically shows up in both sweat and also those hard-earned calluses when you look at a player's hands and they're ripped to shreds and sometimes they're bleeding. But you know what? It's those things that um, you don't see on a Sunday afternoon when a player is holding up a trophy, do you? You don't see the um, the iceberg effect where you know, on a Sunday you see less than than ten percent of everything that's being built to that point to um, to help a player succeed. That's good stuff. Now, last time that I saw you was at the PGA Show, uh, not that long ago, but a month ago. Uh, you were doing a bit of an exhibition with 
the Full Swing Virtual Green Putting Simulator. And this is, uh, for people who don't know, it's really, really cool. Uh, it's a computer-driven, but it's an actual, it's a putting green. And it, it changes via software to reflect the demands that you might want to put on it. If you want to put a hill here, if you want the slope to go really quickly or run away from you or kind of go into you, it, it can do everything. It's incredible. And I'm curious, is that something that you and Jordan actually use when you're working on his putting? We tap into, I guess, we use any means of technology, any way to enhance his, his training, and any player's training for that matter. I'll use any resource that um, I feel is going to be beneficial. So in the, in the context of the full swing golf um, virtual green, the, the thing is absolutely amazing. There's actuators at the, at the bottom of it that um, can basically dial in any slope, um, any um, speed, therefore, any type of putt that you want to train on. The, the one we were using at, um, at the PGA show was that historic putt Jordan made on 16 at the, the U.S. Open at Chambers Bay. That was just a brilliant test and, and a realistic test in that, and that's what it needs to be. It needs to be realistic. So um, we use things like that um, you know, every day that, that, we're, that we're together. You know, what you want is you want to create um, realistic conditions in practice that what you're going to, to what you're going to face in uh, and when you when you play and you want to create what we'll call scaled challenge uh, i mentioned that just a few minutes ago a progression from simple or basic to quite advanced as as the players um, skills speak to being uh, ready to be challenged and that's what a dynamic green like the virtual green can provide it can provide this okay we need a flat surface just to train our direction control now we need to learn break and now we need to learn to read complex breaks like what we were doing at, uh, at the pga show so most definitely an ability to change the tools that you're using and be dynamic with those tools is, uh, is a great benefit of that yeah for anyone listening if you ever get a chance to to see one of these virtual greens it is super cool and i know you had myself and one of my colleagues kind of trying to hit that putt that jordan hit on 16 and we were not coming close and just kind of goes to show uh you know when you watch jordan make a putt like that especially in a u.s open on those greens uh you know it might look simple for him but it is very very difficult um now you have other students and i know that uh, until they make it really big you're going to be known as jordan spieth's coach but you also coach a very high group of amateurs. You've got Will Zalatoris. You've got Noah Goodwin. Another guy is on the web.com, Austin Connolly. I'm missing a few others, but you've got a long list of, of folks that you are the coach for. How do coaches like yourself, how do you handle that many students that are going to need you for specific times of the week, specific times of the year? How do you handle the, the workload? Yeah, so being coach to the last, I'll say four of the last, Seven or eight U.S. Junior Championships with uh, with one of those players being a, a runner-up finisher, being a coach to four of the top 50 LPGA players in the world, and being a coach or um, a, a consultant to three of the top 100 men in the world as well. It, it's challenging, and, and what you speak to there is how do you manage time and the expectations of those players, and really it's about building levels of self-sufficiency rather than dependency so if it was a situation where i wasn't equipping players with the knowledge that they needed to reflect on their own performance come up with the um, solutions to the problems that they have on their own in my presence would be needed much more frequently than it is so my principle is 
uh, under port, and the ship only has to come back into the port when it needs supplies and repairs. Um, and most of the time, the ships, meaning athletes, they're out there and they can repair themselves, and that's the beauty of doing what I do. It means that I can um, teach a good number of clients that compete, whether it be in um, Europe, in the case of a couple of European tour players or coach, or um, in Asia, America, or all over the world for the LPGA and PGA tours, um, and not have to be there week in, week out. Uh, so I feel like that's the model that's worked successfully for me, but more importantly than that, the working successfully for me, that's the model that works more successfully and most successfully for the best players in the world, is they can't rely uh, on someone else. They can um, use uh, professionals, coaches, consultants to gather information, but then it's what they do with that information uh, in their own experience that's most important. So yeah, self-sufficiency is the goal. And, and each of these students, are, they're going to be different by default. Uh, they're going to have different swings and different ages, different levels of potential, really. How is your work with a top 10 player like Jordan um, going to differ from your work with an amateur? Is it? I'm sure it's case by case, but is there something that you are generally going to be able to do with Jordan that you can't do with, with an amateur player? Yeah, but that would only be constrained by time, meaning with a recreational amateur given that they don't have as much time to apply to development, then what I might do with them would um, not quite peel as many layers of the onion back. We wouldn't trip, we wouldn't go down the rabbit hole on development as deep as I'd be able to do with someone like um, Jordan or any other best players in the world. So it's constrained by time. And, and, of course, I think what goes without saying is it's also constrained a bit by skill as well. Recreational amateurs um, have a lower ceiling than the most talented players in the world um, just with this factor of time and also factor of, of, of ability. And that's the beauty of well, that's the, the skill of being a coach is recognizing what um, what that person has that's standing in front of you and then tailoring your coaching, your instruction um, to the level of um, ability that they present with. Now, being able to see a level of ability beyond what uh, a current a player currently has, I think that's another really uh, point of differentiation uh, for the best coaches in the world. They can see a reality that's drastically different, perhaps, than what um, the player would currently be experiencing, and they, they take them there. Um, that's another trait that I probably should have mentioned earlier when I went around the country and watched these great coaches. It's like they saw this um, this, this, this this stone that was just brought out of the ground, and they I realized there was precious metal beneath and they just had to um, to, to shape and, and refine it to reveal that. Okay, so then how does an amateur, what is something that an amateur or, you know, or a young uh, junior golfer, what is something that they would do that would show you that, that would show you, holy cow, this this kid has a lot of potential or there's a lot of untapped potential here that they don't even know about? Yeah, one of the cornerstones of development is self-awareness. When I get a player in front of me that can um, tell me what they were feeling in their body, uh, what they felt in their club, and where they may have uh, felt contact, so ball-to-face contact or club-based precision of impact, uh, when they can become or be aware of those things without me having to tell them, that's one of the cornerstones of um, it's one of the cornerstone things that suggests the player has potential over and above uh, what they may 
um, maybe revealing right now. Because when a player has that self-awareness, what it tells me is if I give them the right information, they can tap into the clues that they get when they're practicing on their own and apply the good information that I'm going to give them to continue the success and practice and development outside my presence. So that's one of those things. Another one is the psychology. Uh, it's a huge um, point of separation between players that continue to grow their skills and those that don't. The psychology that says that they're determined to create success, to get an outcome that they're looking for, no matter whether they're successful now or not. Uh, the psychology that, 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 that says they're going to work through the disappointment. They're going to try and understand the disappointment, whether it might be a shot or a round or, or a tournament finish. Those are factors that um, I'm looking for that tell me uh, a young player, even an older player, a recreational amateur, has um, abilities beyond what they're currently um, attaining or demonstrating. Is that as readily apparent, uh, visually apparent, as as you and other coaches make it seem? I think you said about Jordan is that right away it became so clear that mentally he's he's ready. He's ready to commit to everything, to commit the time, the effort. Is it so readily apparent as you might make it seem and other coaches have made it seem? Because I feel like that's something that has got to be kind of difficult to spy. Yeah, I would say that for the untrained eye, the unexperienced instructor, it is difficult to spot. But for the experienced instructor that's had time with players that have demonstrated these traits of excellence, it's actually fairly easy to spot. Um, I'll say, and this is, I'm kind of contradicting myself in a couple of different ways here, it's, it's hidden, but it comes out in conversation. It's hidden, but it's demonstrated in body language. And as long as you're asking the right questions, then you can extract the information. As long as you're paying attention to the body language, um, then you can, you can pick up on the clues that demonstrate, that tell um, you a lot about the psychology of a player. And it's really hard to give specific examples because um, it's so nuanced, it's so unique to who the person is from, a, from just basic character traits, character standpoint, um, that you, you really can't say that here's the five things that would um, be... Um, the needle movers to develop really strong psychology um, because everyone fits in at different points along the continuum of um, what they may need for to be a strong, psychologically uh, well-developed um, well-developed player. But yeah, going back to your original question, uh, without doubt, it's hard to spot unless you have the experience and you know what questions to ask and what things to look for. Now, pace of play, it's an important topic in the world of golf and and it's something that the USGA, the RNA, and all these leading governing bodies are trying to focus on in some way or another. But I would tend to think that that can start with coaches. Do you think it starts with coaches at all? And, and how can coaches teach their students to play faster? Yeah, that's a tough one, isn't it? You know, if you're looking at the business side of it, I think you're um, cannibalizing the potential for growing your client base when you're out there and you're, you're maybe giving a playing lesson. You say, well, one of the lessons we need to do is we need to play faster. Well, I think everyone knows you're calling someone out for playing slow. You risk um, damaging that relationship. So it's probably a delicate slope to be, um, to be trying to navigate. Having said that, is it um, a responsibility and opportunity probably better said for us as instructors and coaches? Absolutely. I think far too much, far too much of the time, 
instructors exist on an island, and that island is called the driving range, or it's inside a studio, and they don't get on the golf course to try and help a player enhance their ability to collect all the data points that may, they may need to collect to play faster. And so whilst I might have mentioned you don't want to have to have that conversation, look, frankly, you just got to play faster, but what you can do is you can you can softly start to deliver those messages by helping them um, pick up all the information at a faster rate, like what the yard is, where the wind is, and be and be game ready to where, if they're playing in a golf cart, it, um, you grab the club out of the bag, collect all the data um, right before you do that, and hit your shot, then jump back in the golf cart. Don't worry about taking your club and putting it back in the bag, and you save a couple of seconds just by only being one grab or a, a, a person that returns the bag once to grab a club um, versus twice. Just a couple of seconds here or there might um, might save some time. So, yeah, it's, it's an opportunity, um, but in order for it to be um, realized, coaches are going to have to get out on the golf course a whole lot more than, uh, than I see them doing. So um, at the same time, people have to take responsibility for their own actions too. It's a social game. Um, at the same time, we complain about how long it takes, but yet um, you take any trip around the golf course on a Saturday morning or, and, and you'll notice there's a lot of banter, interaction on the green, on the tee box, where um, efficiencies are lost. So it's also um, probably a self-reflective moment on behalf of the players to say, are they doing their best to play faster as well versus just being the, the finger pointer. Now, it's it's probably a question you've been asked before, and with the Masters five weeks away now, and Jordan being your, your most successful client, is it is what happened last year a growing point in your eyes? Do you try to pounce on what failure was, or do you try to ignore failure? Do you try to make the most of what it can be in your future? I'm curious about how the coach reflects upon that with the student. Yeah, in the moment, meaning back... Uh, last year, it was certainly a, an, an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to, to talk about it and grow from it. You know, you can you look at it and say um, <laughs> it was a bad time, it was a bad shot, it was a bad hole, uh, but there was so much other good that was happening before and just as if not more importantly after the, the grit, the tenacity, the resilience to bounce back with birdies on uh, 13, 15, almost 16, and almost 18 to get back into contention. So we don't look at it as something that we're burdened by. Um, we look at it as a growth opportunity. Um, how can he bounce back uh, both in that round? Will he prove that? How can he bounce back in weeks later? Will he prove that winning his second event uh, out at Colonial? And how can he bounce back by turning that, the obstacle, upside down in all the conversations he has as well, because people want to focus on um, the event, actual, um, what led up to it, and how that might affect someone from a negative standpoint moving forward. But rather, what we're trying to do is we're trying to frame it. How can we grow from that, to your point, uh, well made? But we haven't talked about that for, goodness, I can't remember how long. Um, as it gets closer to the event, it may come up in conversation, but not because we bring it up, only because... The press want to discuss it, and then <laughs> when we get to Augusta, it might be something that we discuss, but um, it'll only be in terms of what's the strategy on this hole given that whole location. It's not going to be a strategy that we're saying we're defending against um, the um, 
the, the situation that happened last year on Sunday. It's not, he's not going to be playing away um, any greater defensive strategy than he otherwise would be given skills for that week. So, yeah, uh, I guess the short of it is that uh, we turned it into a growth opportunity. We tried to turn that obstacle and create positives out of it. And as we uh, track closer to that event, uh, we won't respond in any other way other than um, in a positive manner towards um, creating a strategy for any hole out there. Uh, but in this case, talking about hole number 12, other than the strategy for what he has for that week um, in ball flight um, and skills. Now, with the Masters in mind, uh, you, you talked about how Jordan's been incredibly successful there. And that's my last question is that when he approaches you in March and says, hey, we need to maybe have a little tune-up. I don't even know if he'll do this. I don't know if you would know that he would do this, but do you guys have a a major tune-up session like a lot of coaches will have with their players three weeks prior, or or when you're trying to when he's trying to peak for the Masters, what kind of work you guys might do differently? Yeah, um, we change what he does in practice, the tasks, the drills, the games that he's playing. Um, based on where his skills are currently at and also based on what event he's trying to get ready for. So there is a dynamic approach that we take in preparation for major championships. Um, At Augusta, it's typically centered around fast greens and big breaking putts, so we'll change the games we're playing um, to represent those types of conditions, so bigger breaks on faster slopes. Uh, we'll also prioritize um, a good uh, difference in um, in wedge play, where we'll be creating different trajectories with different spins. Um, we'll give a little higher priority to making sure that he's got um, good flight control with the irons because those greens out there are so compartmentalized as compared with playing um, maybe some flatter surfaces or greens that you can hit it to 20, 30 feet, and it doesn't feed another 40 or 50 feet away from the whole location. You're firing at like some tour golf courses. So, iron precision is as a priority. Distance is less of a priority at Augusta unless it gets really, uh, really wet. So there's no um, pushing the accelerator on trying to capture speeds. Um, it's really about yeah, um, the nuance of iron precision, uh, wedge precision, and just really, really fast and big breaking parts. But there is a um, a big uh, recentering or uh, redefining focus as you're getting ready for um, the type of golf course that Augusta National is. But that could, the same could be said for most of the major championships. They each present a unique uh, challenge that you've got to prepare adequately for. Well, we can leave it at that. I really appreciate you jumping in on the wedges and iron details there, Cam. Thanks most of all for your time today. My pleasure, Sean, and uh, all the best, and hope your viewers have, uh, have a great year on the, on the links. Beautiful. Well, as I said, the Masters is just five weeks away, so get excited, y'all. It's that time of year. Big thank you to Cam McCormick for joining me today. Great stuff from him. The guy is a great coach in not just a Jordan Spieth, but a number of great amateurs that are coming up, as well as other pros out there in the game right now. Don't be surprised if another major winner comes from his group of students. If you like today's podcast, let me know on Twitter at Sean underscore Zock. That's S-E-A-N underscore Z-A-K. If you hated the podcast, well, please just ignore my Twitter handle then. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zock.